Every fleet has its own pattern, has its own use case, has its own drivers in terms of is the time the most important thing, the location the most important thing, and that level of complexity really requires expertise to manage. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take two minutes to give us a review on iTunes with a five-star rating, if you would. We'd greatly appreciate it. Today, we're joined by Neha Palmer, CEO of EV Charging Infrastructure Developer, Terawatt Infrastructure. And for those of you in the industry, you also know that she's former head of energy strategy at Google. Neha recently wrote an article for Wired titled, Electric Vehicle Charging is the Next Billion Dollar Market, where she spoke to both the potential and challenges associated with the transition to vehicle fleet electrification. As I know how important this topic is to our community, I've invited Neha to Smart Energy Voices for a conversation on the topic. So welcome, Neha, and thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us briefly about your background, your current role, and maybe also give us a high-level overview of Terawatt infrastructure. Sure. My background up until Terawatt was always in the energy industry with lots of different hats. I was an engineer. I worked on the finance side of the industry, worked in renewables development, working with large-scale developers to create really large solar and wind farms. And then for the last decade, almost, I was at Google helping lead their energy strategy focused on data centers, which was really focused on infrastructure, you know, large substations, transmission lines coming into a project, energy procurement, so making sure that we had the cleanest energy sources possible, and then all of the fun that goes with managing a giant portfolio of renewable energy assets, so trading in the market, real-time operations, all that good stuff. My current role is that I'm the CEO of Terawatt Infrastructure. I've been here almost a year. And Terawatt is a company that has been purpose-built to develop large-scale EV charging infrastructure focused on fleets and fleets of medium-duty and heavy-duty vehicles, so those vehicles that will have pretty large battery sizes. Terawatt can provide an end-to-end solution, so everything from the location to charge, the site, working with the utility to bring in the large amount of power interconnect required for charging a fleet of large vehicles, and then managing a site once it's operational. It's a little bit more complex than just uh, providing some chargers. There certainly is some management of the operations of the site when it comes to making sure that you have sufficient energy supply, you're leveraging resources you might have like on-site generation and storage. And then how does that play with the grid? So Terawatt can provide that whole stack of services. How I got here was it's actually not that different from a data center. If you look at a data center, you need all the same elements. You need a site, power, and then you need a manager's operation. So excited to be here today to tell you more about Terawatt and what we see in the industry. Oh, wow. That's that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. Already an insight into the similarities between 
a large depot with electric trucks and vans and managing a data center. There's so many things I'd like to ask you about related to your time in Google, but I know we have to, we're here today to talk about EV charging infrastructure. So maybe we'll start by talking about the potential of this massive transition that we're anticipating. In the article that you wrote in Wired, you referenced that 2022, this year, is the year that midsize EV fleets actually hit the road. Why do you think that that's actually going to happen? What is it that you see that leads you to believe that 2022 is when this is really going to start with midsize EVs? Well, it's been a drumbeat that's been developing for many years. You've seen those corporate commitments that are very familiar to you covering energy for corporates. There's been a strong drive amongst some of the leading corporations to transition their fleets to EVs and specifically fleets of medium-duty vehicles. You have a lot of the you know, last-mile delivery companies saying, this is actually important to us and we're going to make a move here. That takes a couple of different things. And the first thing is it requires vehicles. And many of these vehicles have been in development. They've been piloted over the last couple of years. But 2022 is the first year where we see a significant number of vehicles actually coming off those production lines and coming to market at scale. So the ones that have put in their orders, they're finally uh, being able to pick them up and they see the line of sight to getting the delivery of those vehicles. So it really is, I think, the first year will you'll see people moving beyond that pilot phase with testing out these midsize EVs and moving towards actually integrating them as part of their fleet operations. Some people don't know this, but you know most fleets turn over between 5 and 10% a year. And so what we hear now from customers that we're talking to is that they're starting to integrate this into their normal vehicle turnover program that they know that they're going to start integrating and feathering in a number of EVs with that re-upping of their fleets. It's interesting. You mentioned that those that have put orders in are going to start seeing them come off the assembly lines. It's going to be interesting to see at what point, if we get there, the demand for vehicles actually exceeds the supply. That's going to be an interesting balancing act going forward because we you know we see the opportunity here being very large put some dimension on the size of the opportunity from your point of view you know related to vehicle fleet electrification and kind of the related opportunity for EV charging infrastructure well i know that this is a power savvy audience and if you think about some stats that i've heard which is To fully electrify all transport in the United States, you would need enough generation capacity that's double what we have in place right now in the U.S. So if you think about that, that's doubling of our electric system. And if you think about, again, the entire stack that's required, that's just the raw electrons needed. But there's a huge amount of infrastructure to take those electrons and then put them in vehicles. So that is a really, really immense opportunity in terms of the number of locations, the number of chargers, It really is a wholesale transition of our transportation infrastructure. And so the opportunity is absolutely immense if you think about full electrification. Well, that would also explain why utilities are so interested in this because, well, interested and concerned, because if you're talking about potentially doubling load, that that's the implications for that are just enormous. One of the things that fascinates me about this entire phenomenon is the fact that I think it's going to be much more complex, for example, to the adoption of renewables. And in your article, you reference how you see this as kind of the complex intersection between energy, transportation, and technology. 
Talk to us a little about what that really means for you and how do you see those those three areas having to coalesce for this to happen? Sure. Well, it really is super exciting from my perspective. You know, these are three pretty robust industries that have operated somewhat independently since their inception. If you look at a light bulb, they have LEDs now, but they still look functionally very similar to what you know we had 100 years ago. And transportation is certainly an industry that has been well established. We have companies providing services in that in that sector and a lot of government programs that are you know very specific to that industry. And then technology, of course, has taken off over the last decades. But this is the first use case that I can see where all three really have to operate tightly together in order to get success here. You have the technology involved with the vehicles. And it's not just you know, putting batteries in vehicles instead of ICE engines. It really is a wholesale renewal of technology. So these are state-of-the-art vehicles. Oftentimes, some of them are autonomous. And so you think about that technology, that's a really important part of electrification. The confluence of energy and transportation is super important as well. These are both industries that are heavily reliant on, I wouldn't say subsidies, but on policy. There's FERC and there's all the state regulatory commissions, and then you have the US DOT and the state DOTs. And so if you look at the confluence of those two together, those policies have been made independently for centuries, essentially at this point. And it's time for them to start to collaborate. And you actually see that. You see that at the federal level, there is more collaboration between the DOE and the DOT as they recognize that that has to happen in, for, in order for electrification to happen. So it's really critical. We're not going to you know, make this transition if those three industries can't coalesce and start to build policy and build product together. Yeah, that makes sense. And we could go on and on just kind of trying to frame the, the potential, but I, I think it's there. We're aligned. I know our audience is aligned and what they're really interested in kind of getting a handle on, I, I think would be your take on the challenges and issues associated with implementing this EV charging infrastructure at scale for fleets, as you referenced in the article that you published. Our experience, Neha, is that kind of when people start thinking about this, the first thing they start thinking about is, well, what vehicles are available? That That's kind of the first level of thinking and concern. And there's a lot of confusion about what's going to be available when and people initially are focused on that. But in your article, you talk about kind of the gap between figuring out the availability of vehicles and the ability to charge them efficiently and effectively. Tell us a little more about that. What do you see as the gap and what do you think is going to be necessary to close the gap? Well, I think what's exciting is that there are lots of enterprises that are interested in engaging with electrification. So oftentimes they will undertake a pilot, like, you know, good experiments. Uh, you want to start small, you know, they'll have a pilot that hopefully is successful, right? And when they do that pilot, they're often able to use the power that they have in-house. So they might you know, be able to plug in a couple of chargers to support that pilot within their house power. And usually that goes pretty well. It doesn't require too much interaction with the utility. It can happen on a fairly fast timeframe. You know, they see a lot of success and they are engaging with the vehicles. In many cases, they like them. And so they decide that they want to scale up. And I think that's when the gap starts to emerge. You know, I was talking with a utility this morning and they were telling me that just to change the service for an existing location 
which you might need if you start to add more vehicles that require chargers and might want to charge simultaneously up the power at the site, it's 18 to 24 months. So if you think about the buying cycle for a vehicle, you can put in an order and hopefully if you know there's success in starting to produce these faster, have a vehicle in six to 12 months. And that's just not the same time frame for having the amount of charging that you would need on site. So the timing is just one gap that we see that's going to emerge. The second is the cost. Right now, electric vehicles can be at a higher price point than ICE vehicles for the same use case. There is an analysis to be done over the life cycle. Many people are seeing that the total cost of operation over the life cycle can be positive with an EV because there's much less maintenance. But getting over that initial additional funding required to have that higher cost vehicle is an issue. And if you then think about having to put in chargers, maybe having to pay for a utility upgrade, that can pretty quickly start to add to the cost of converting to EVs and can be prohibitive for some businesses. So there's time, there's cost, and then there's complexity. These sites that many people operate at currently may not even have on-site fueling. So that's not where fueling happens. Maybe constrained from a space perspective already, business is booming and Many industries like last mile delivery and other logistics businesses are already trying to keep up with the growth. And so they might be in a situation where they don't have the space on site to provide for charging. So look at the, you know, the time frame, the cost, the complexity when it comes to space, and then the on-site management that needs to happen. This is not a set it and forget it. You know, we talked about the transition to renewable energy being a little bit easier because it doesn't change the operations of a site or a company or a fleet. This will have a small impact, hopefully not big, but it will require some adjustment to what they do. And you know, you layer on all those things and it's a pretty big gap in terms of what will be required to charge and what's out there from day one and when people are ready to, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to you know, move my fleet over to EVs. There's a lot of education, a lot of capital, and a lot of resources are required to make that, that, get, that change. Yeah. This is great. We're really getting into it because even if you have the money to buy an all new fleet of EVs, it's going to take you six to 12 months to get them. Your point is it may take 18 to 24 months to be in a position where you could actually charge those. And that's a part of the equation that I don't think a lot of people have really thought about yet. I guess the closest I've heard to it is where people have said, hey, it's one thing to have 10 cars in your EV fleet, but if you're talking about 100 or you're talking about more than 100, and particularly if it's midsize vans and trucks, that's a whole different ballgame. In your article, you talked about kind of systems being needed that would provide on-site generation and storage along with grid interactive demand management systems in order for all this to to happen. What does that actually look like? And is that something you're expecting utilities to provide? Is that something that new players to the market are going to provide? It certainly will be site dependent. You know, I think two things that we focus on at Darawatt, making sure that we're driving towards is the lowest cost of charging for customers and being able to deliver the product they need, which is charging as soon as possible. And so elements like on-site generation, on-site storage can really help with two elements. Hopefully in an instance where there may not be the amount of capacity that you need on the grid, 
you can use these elements to provide surge capacity. So you have a bunch of vehicles charging at once. You can provide extra you know, bump of power with either one of those tools. The second is the cost. Certainly as the cost of storage, the cost of on-site solar goes down over time, we've seen those cost curves, especially for storage, continue to accelerate downward. There is the, the thought that you can use that to do things like offset demand charges or also just have a source of generation that you know, is lower cost than what might be available from the incumbent provider. So I think those are elements that we think that are pretty important. It will depend on the site. It will depend on the suitability of the location for these types of elements. But you know, I think another aspect that's going to quickly come to the forefront, and this is a, something near and dear to me from my data center days, is reliability. As more and more, you know, a larger percentage of fleets are electrified, having some resilience at charging locations is going to be required. Can't imagine a situation where, uh, you know, the power goes out for a significant amount of time and there's just no way at all to get any vehicles charged. So we think that's going to be an increasing request from customers. And so those types of elements can help meet the customer service levels that they require. I know the uh, Anaheim Transportation Network did something interesting recently where they're in the process of electrifying their fleet of buses that serve Disneyland and the surrounding area. And they did an innovative program that included installation of on-site solar storage and charging for their fleet, which is modest size. This isn't something that was done yet at scale. But I guess the vision is, is that those types of integrated systems are going to be needed in the future. In the article, you referenced how these fleets, once they're electrified, can be used as, and these systems can be used as a flexible resource for the grid. What did you mean by that? Well, certainly there's going to be many of these installations. And if you think about all of the things coming down, you know, FERC 2222 that allows aggregation of resources on the, you know, behind the meter to become a resource on the grid, you know, in an aggregated fashion, you can see that that can be something that can be leveraged for a couple of different things. Hopefully it can be maybe a source of revenue, but it can also reduce the cost of operating on a certain grid. And maybe it can be supportive to a grid. I think the grid is about to become a lot more interactive. We now have the communication tools for that to happen. And so if there's a signal of, you know, we are going to have a crunch over the next 45 minutes or whatever it might be, there is a way to then potentially ramp down, do different things where you could actually be supportive to the grid. Because again, if you think about the grid expanding by double in terms of what we have today, there's certainly going to be a lot of demand for providing more interactivity and supporting that grid over time. Well, when you describe the grid as becoming much more interactive, I would suggest that's an optimistic point of view. I know it's necessary, <laughs> but it hits on a topic. What what changes do you think are necessary in the grid to be able to accommodate this, this massive transformation and what can amount to be a very, very dramatic increase in, in load on the grid? Well, I think that interactivity is going to be required to be able to scale this up, the speed that we want to scale it up. So there's a slow kind of policy process that's working its way through the various states and the various grid operators. We need that to accelerate and have very clear rules so that people know when they install a piece of equipment, what the value of that is. I think there needs to be interconnection reform. 
right now it's a long process, but besides that, it's different in almost every single location. So I think having a better line of sight in terms of what it takes to get a project on the grid will be really helpful. And then it takes a lot of planning. Even the most you know, forward-leaning grid operators and utilities that want to promote electrification aren't quite anticipating the amount of impact this might have on their grid. So this is starting to get energy wonky, but most utilities that are investor-owned utilities have to run an integrated resource plan process where they actually anticipate what the load growth will be on the grid, where it might occur. And we need to start integrating the adoption of electric vehicles into those integrated resource plans. It's probably going to happen later than the demand that you're going to see from EVs is starting to rise. And so we can't do that soon enough. It certainly has to happen you know, in the next 24 months where people start anticipating this. Because even if you look at a lot of corporations have goals for 2030 or you know, even beyond, the amount of time it takes to plan for that and then execute and build out uh, supporting infrastructure is significantly longer. So I think those are really important things that would really help make sure that we're able to achieve what we want on the electrification side. Yeah. I guess like any industry sector, there are early adopters, you then get the mass and you then get laggards. I mean, as it relates to renewable energy targets, I guess we now have the masses of utilities integrating renewables into their IRPs. The thought of utilities kind of getting with it and having them at scale doing IRPs for renewables, you're now, you're now talking about a whole new dimension of planning that they're going to have to add. How do you see them responding to this challenge, say, compared to the challenge of renewables? How do you see them getting prepared for that challenge? It's great because, you know, I was part of that when we had the transition to renewables here in California, where I sit. And, you know, I think it's a couple of elements. First, the policy has to start. In California, we had a a landmark legislative bill that pushed us in that direction, but then the regulators started setting the policy. I think setting budgets and thinking about what it might cost and what investment might be required for the transition is important. So you see that starting to happen in some of the forward-leaning locations. You know, I think they're doing a lot of the similar things they did for this transition from conventional technology to renewables. So they're starting to respond in that way. I think that the speed of this transition and how it's going to be driven is a little bit different. So what you saw with the transition to renewable energy, it really was something a bit esoteric that the utilities and the regulators were pushing. Corporates got into it but it was already fairly established at that point. You had some of those really large renewable deals that I had the fun of working on when I was utility um, had already been put in place. And so when the corporates got into the game, there was already a pretty well-known trod path of how you contract for that, how you make it happen. Here, this demand is really going to come from fleets. I think pretty quickly you'll see that they like the total cost of operation, They like the product. It's actually an interesting aspect of this that people don't talk about a lot. It's a superior product, has more technology, better driver experience. So you'll see, you know, a groundswell of demand from consumers, I think, much earlier in the adoption curve than you saw for renewables. And so utilities might get pressure from consumers faster than they saw for renewables. And so being able to respond to that, I think, will be critical as they are focused on their customers. That's fascinating. While I've always thought, hey, this is being driven principally by 
emission reduction commitments and people recognize the role transport plays in their footprint. So they start moving along to EVs. Your thought is in the next 24 months, this is going to happen more quickly than corporate interest in adopting renewables. We see that when we speak with our customers. Yeah. I would say one one of the reasons I was really excited about talking with you, uh, Neha, is that you've got that perspective because you drove a large part of the adoption of renewables. So you've got a really informed point of view. So I'd like to move on to kind of the next big topic that's of real interest to me, and I'm interested in your take on it. I mean, I think the fleet the fleet management industry is about to be disrupted in a big way. We've talked about the load demands on utilities have the chance to have the opportunity to increase dramatically. I think with all of this, there's going to be new business models are going to emerge. I think this sector is ripe for new ideas and new thinking to kind of lead the disruption. In the article, you talked about this new sector that you envision called kind of specialist charging infrastructure companies that will emerge with expertise to manage the capital requirements, the risk operations, and energy management necessary for success. How big will this sector be? And who do you think will be the leading players in the space? And kind of who else is in there today, I I assume, other than uh, Terawatt? A lot of questions there. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll harken back to you know my experience over the last decade, which was focused on data centers. And if you look at the evolution of that industry, you know most companies had a data center, maybe a closet to start out with, that they hosted all of their technology infrastructure in. And over time, uh, you saw that transition from the data center in the corporate basement to the data center that was sitting with a cloud company. And that has really proliferated a huge amount of the growth in data centers throughout the world. And I think what you'll see is a similar thing here. You know, with data centers, that is, was a new asset class 20 years ago. The thought of having, you know, this standalone data center that wasn't tied to any one company was somewhat esoteric and investors didn't know how to approach it. We see a similar type of asset class for fleet charging and and charging hubs. You know, again, it has a lot of the similar elements. You need the site, you need the interconnect, and you need that expertise to operate the site effectively. So anybody who can provide that stack of services like Terawatt, I think, will be a player in this market. It's early days. You know, I think there's a lot of different business models out there. You mentioned that a lot of fleets are focused on which vehicles and vehicle selection. There are some companies that think about it even more holistically than we do. It's, you know, fleet as a service that encompasses the vehicles, the charging, everything. Within any industry, you'll always see specialization over time. People who are true experts in the real estate aspect or in the operations aspect, just given what I've seen with data centers, there is a grouping of specialties, I think, that makes sense and that are you could put together inside of a company like Terawatt and provide really great value by bundling those services. And you know, that's what we see. But it is early days and we'll see who who emerges as as you know the leader in this industry. I think it is so large you will see multiple models depending on who the customer is. There will be that customer who wants to have a more OPEX-like payment and they don't want to make a big upfront investment in vehicles and they don't want to deal with any of the charging. So 
I do think there's other models that will be out there, but it's uh, really exciting to watch. We think the opportunity is quite large. If you, again, maybe benchmarking to data centers, you know, you look at the number of data centers that there exist in North America, it's taken 20 years and, you know, they're in the hundreds of large scale data centers. We know that this transition, again, is going to happen way faster, driven by corporate demand and, and customer demand. And so if you think about how large the transportation infrastructure is and different types of vehicle classes you have, you could see sites in the number of thousands just in North America. So huge opportunity for this type of asset, especially as we're uh, kicking off this market here. Boy, that's that's a whiteboard I want to get a look at. <laughs> I could see the map. I could see the grand plan. That's really very compelling, very exciting. The analogies of data centers interesting. I think obviously you've got as transportation relates to shipping and trucking, there are going to be, I could see why rather than hundreds of locations, it's thousands of locations. And this whole fleet is a service piece, I think is going to be an interesting part of it. This topic alone, Neha, I, I think we could go on and on. I've got a lot of follow-ups that I want to ask there, but that'll be for another time. So the role of utilities, do you see utilities getting into this specialist charging infrastructure space? Uh, do you see them getting into fleets as a service? Uh, if I was managing utility and I see demand potentially going to 2X and it's a whole new ball game for kind of who's going to benefit from that growth, I might view it as a, as a growth opportunity. What, what, what role do you think utilities are going to play in, in this sector? Well, they're going to have to get involved, I think, as we talked about earlier, in terms of the expansion of electric infrastructure to support this transition. They'll have to be critically involved in planning for individual sites on a grid-level basis. And so I think the opportunity for them is they're going to be able to expand the assets that they put into operation just to support these sites. I will say, I think that there is a complexity to these sites that isn't just, you know, it's not a plugging in a bunch of toasters. It certainly has a <laughs> level of complexity that I, I, you know, I honestly didn't appreciate until I started understanding more about fleets. Every fleet has its own pattern, has its own use case, has its own drivers in terms of is the time the most important thing, is location the most important thing. And that level of complexity really requires expertise to manage. It requires expertise in understanding fleets and the various fleets that need these types of services. And it takes integration from understanding that fleet all the way from the energy supply to provide that charging infrastructure and then managing that interaction with the grid. It is certainly energy intense and you have to understand the electricity aspect of it, but you also have to understand the business models of these customers. And so utilities, you know, I think they do have a big role to play, but as far as you know, operating these sites, I think these customers know their sites the best and they'll want to have a provider who's really focused on that aspect of their business the most. They don't want to have a lot of discussion around, okay, how do we get the you know power lines here? They want to plug in their vehicles and run their business as efficiently as possible. So I see there is a role for companies that are focused on both. Yeah, I think that's right. I think innovators that are not encumbered by legacy models, mindset, are probably the folks that are going to win here. Well, that was great. This was awesome. I'd like to spend the balance of our time together on my favorite part of these conversations, Neha, and that's where we get a chance to learn a little more about our, our, our guest 
You're obviously very driven and you've already experienced great success in your career. What drives you? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, I think that there is the opportunity. If you think about building new business models, building things that make financial sense for a customer, an investor, an operator to really drive important change. That was a journey we had with renewable energy. And I really see a significant opportunity here with transport. If you step back and look at emissions, transportation is about a third of it in the US now. And if we're going to make a dent in reducing our emissions, we really have to address this sector. So for me, it is a giant new challenge. It's just fascinating. And I really love the technology aspect, just so much opportunity. And it's so interesting that wake up every day with something new to learn and a a new problem to solve. So it's just constantly engaging for me. You know, we've I've talked about your background at Google, and we've talked about the analogies here between data centers and these fleet centers. I can't resist asking you about you know your previous work at at Google because it was so so meaningful. Tell us briefly about you know your journey there at, at the company and some of the key things you feel like you accomplished while you were at Google. You know, I think as I think about my time at Google, what I really think I took away the most is just how to do something at enormous scale. You know, when I started, we had, I think, eight data centers on two continents. And when I left, we were dozens on four continents. And so learning how to scale something to a a size that was honestly unimaginable when we started is something that was part of my Google journey. I think what we did at Google was show that a really big corporation with a large energy consumption could get focused on sourcing clean energy, could build coalitions to do so with other like-minded companies. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that we we did uh, while I was there, and I'm really proud of, is that we really seeded that corporate clean energy movement. We showed that it could happen and that we could do it. We got others to join us. We spent time educating others by developing organizations to support that. And I think that is really what I'm the most proud of Thinking forward, I hope we do something similar here with charging to show that it's it's possible and it's possible at scale. Yeah, it's very exciting. Scaling something to a size that's unimaginable, that's exciting. It, it's really exciting. And it's challenging. And you know what? Someone's going to do it and the opportunity is here and it's got to happen if this transition to vehicle fleet electrification is going to be successful. So including what you've done at Google and outside of Google, what would you consider your your greatest accomplishment? What are you most proud of? Gosh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think it is you know, seeding new industries, right? You know, when it was working at the utility on the large-scale renewable contracts, no one had done a multi-hundred megawatt solar farm at the time. And we were forging new territory. And I think that's what I'm the most proud of is not being scared of that we haven't done it yet factor in some of the projects I've worked on. And I think that is critical to solving really hard problems. And I've been lucky to be parts of teams and leading teams that have been working on that. I think that's what I'm the most proud of is really challenging status quo. And specifically when it comes to scale, because if you think of any of these problems that we have, whether it's reducing emissions or those types of things, it's going to require scale. And so I think my uh, biggest achievement probably is 
challenging status quo when it comes to scale and, and commercializing and scaling up. Yeah. Well, look, you've clearly done that a great deal and you've accomplished a lot to do that, right? You always have to overcome challenges. What would you say is, is the biggest challenge that you've had to face and successfully overcame? There's always going to be the chorus of the naysayers of, you know, it's too expensive, it's this, it's that. And I think it's consistently showing with data, with showing with pilots, showing with true action that, you know, you can do some of these things. I think that's been my greatest challenge is you know, making sure that we have all of the information at our fingertips to really prove out what we're saying. And sometimes that's hard, especially if you're doing something for the first time. But I think that is the way that you get decisions made at corporations and make change is that you're able to prove things out. So I think it's just making sure that we're always well-equipped to, to provide you know, people who might be reluctant the information they need to move forward. And I think that's my role here today is really helping customers who want to electrify but may not see that path or, or have conceptions about it that might not be correct to educate them. Yeah, well, listen, Smart Energy Decisions is uh, all in on supporting you there because we we share that as, as a common goal. Who would you say has, has had the greatest impact on your career and who do you uh, admire most? You know, it's uh, maybe trite, but, you know, I really admire my parents. They both have an incredibly strong work ethic. My dad's in his 70s and He's an engineer and still working away, and we don't know if we'll, he'll ever uh, hang it up. But I think you know you can have vision, you can have luck, you can have opportunity, but none of that really comes to fruition unless you have that work ethic and work hard. So I really admire my parents and what they've taught me and what they continue to teach me when it comes to that. That's great, and I don't think it's tried at all. I think it's pretty cool, and it's obviously heartfelt. I'm curious with your dad being an engineer and then you becoming an engineer initially as you were growing up, Neha, was, was there a lot of engineering type topics or conversations or discussions? Yeah, it was the family business. Besides my father, I think at least 50% of my cousins are engineers. And so certainly, you know, we were fixing things on our own and had that in our house to me, it was familiar. And so when I was picking a major in college, it seemed like the right thing to do. So having been steeped in that, I think was helpful in, in doing that, at least as the first part of my career. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you have a wonderful family. What impact do you want to leave on the industry, Neha? Coming into this role, I knew it was going to be interesting and a challenge and I would learn a lot. And I think the one thing that always kind of is resounding for me again and again is I really want to make sure that the charging, access to charging, access to cost-effective charging is never the bottleneck that we see in electrification. It's the one you know, lever that I can pull. It's what I'm working on. Obviously, there needs to be vehicles and there needs to be technology and there needs to be coordination. But if I can work on that one piece and grease the skids for people wanting to make that change uh, in this way, I think I will have uh, been successful in what I set out to do. Well, I'll tell you what, knowing how big an issue that's going to be, when you make that happen, you will have made as, as big an impact on EV charging and vehicle fleet electrification as you made in the adoption of uh, renewables. So I, I wish you well in that pursuit. Thank you so much. 
Neha, this was great. I can't thank you enough. I really look forward to following your, your work and getting to know both you and the company better at Terawatt Infrastructure. So good luck to you. Thanks so much, John. And to our listeners, thanks for enjoying our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Neha in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for joining us today and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.